Wah, 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 wah. In honor of the Peanuts movie, what not Calvin and Hobbes comic needs the animated movie treatment? I'm Katie Rich, and I think you could go somewhere really dark and hilarious with the Lockhorn. Hey, it's me, David the Seven, and I'm going to say get fuzzy, because I think that cat and dog would look great as animated characters. I'm Matt Patches, and I'm going to go with the far side, and I'm envisioning a Goosebumps-style mashup of all the weird characters. And I'm David Ehrlich, and I'm going to go with Hagger the Horrible, because that's literally the only other cartoon I can think of besides Dilbert, and we do not support Dilbert on this podcast. I've already written my review of the Hagger the Horrible movie. It's horrible! (laughs) Thanks, Sandy Kenyon. Gentlemen, you can't fight in here. This is the war room. Fine, I can hear you now, Dimitri. Clear and plain and coming through fine. I'm coming through fine too, eh? Good, then. Well, then, as you say, we're both coming through fine. Good. Well, it's good that you're fine then, and I'm fine. I agree with you. It's great to be fine. It's It's a podcast. Hello and welcome to Fighting in the War Room, episode 94 for Tuesday, November 3rd, 2015. The year of our Time Lord, Dr. Emmett Brown, continues on, all of us in good health. And I hear that before we get started, we have multiple reviews. Could it be true? We do, thanks to Patch's uh, (laughs) coercing reviews from our That was a really good idea. Hey, Um, I I paid people off. You can go on Twitter and see. Well, there might have been some confusion, but we'll we'll We we have a... uh, I believe a trio of reviews. I, did, we read Brad T. Simmons last week, I think. Yeah. Uh, the first is from MM12011, who says, This podcast is definitely one of the movie podcasts. I don't have a super witty review. I just wanted Patches to write a poem about the Big Lebowski. Thanks mm. for the podcast, y'all. Now, oh, so you're I didn't writing actually, poems now? Well, no, I didn't say that I would write poems for people. I said that <laughs> if they told me their favorite movie, that I would go on Twitter and declare it as an in-joke. I would call it a poem. But I, I but. realized that that was kind of an in-joke from years ago. I think 2011 yeah. when Tree of Life came out. People might not even remember. So a few people I actually did write on Twitter, this is a poem. But this person asked for a poem about the Big Lebowski, and this is as far as I got. White Russians are white. The Jesus is purple, and that's about, that's about as far as I got because nothing rhymes with purple. purple. You really wow. you backed yourself into a corner. You could have at least gone with purple is the Jesus. Good lord! I hope you're happy with this. Am- rhyming one amateur hours. One, one. one. We also have a review from Not ATK who says, "Eh, it's no Travis Bickle on the Riviera." A pretty good podcast, I should say. A good movie podcast. I have not heard of it, but I'll take your word. Open your mind. Oh, we have actually we have four reviews this evening. Holy wow. crap, these poems. Uh, really? The next, from Epic1044, now one of my most listens, must listens, rather. I first tuned in after hearing Joanna Robinson plug the show. Thank you, hype man, Joanna Robinson. Yeah. I now consider this the prestige podcast among all my subscribed movie shows. The discussion here is more cerebral and often more surprising. There's a great mix of earnest appreciation and unrestrained criticism. While David Ehrlich's contrarian streak doesn't reach the absurd levels of Armin White, I do enjoy hearing a smart person explain why mainstream success doesn't work for them. Since the hosts are rarely unanimous in the reaction to a movie, I know my own opinions will be tested every week in the discussion. Also, Patches might be interested to know my favorite movie is Aliens. So much for prestige. I have tweeted that. I have tweeted that. And my actually, favorite movie poem. is Aliens? <laughs> yeah, that Aliens is a poem. It, it, it is on Twitter. You can see it. 
Uh, and there's no no knocking aliens around these parts. Yes. Uh, and our final review of the evening from Andreas Tomasino Ventura Jr. It's 10 p.m. Do you know where your children are? Never one to pass up a sweet deal. I'm only writing this review to tell Patches that my favorite movie is I Don't Know How She Does It. The movie Carol is greater than Carol Kane, <laughs> is greater than Hagen does is greater than Briars, is greater than Ben and Jerry's, is greater than Eons of Human Indignity, is greater than Man of Steel. <laughs> we should, I David, should say, do you cosign? Cosign. Yeah. I should say that we did not actually read the podcast you thought we read earlier. So we, we, we got five reviews. Oh, you mean read the reviews. Then let's go back. Our our lengthy Uh, one, if you want to go there. uh, Says, oh, wow, this is a a small Russian novel. Uh, I'll read it quickly. Are you doing any voices to keep people entertained as they listen? No, I I will not perform it as Bruce Springsteen performing Adele's Hello, as I've been doing all evening. That's clearly what you need to offer people to do the next reviews, is a (laughs) recording of you doing Uh, Bruce Springsteen. uh, There there would have to be a lot of alcohol involved. Anyway... Simply the greatest, is Brad T. Simmons. This podcast is wonderful and has quickly developed into my favorite podcast to listen to. They're all hilarious and offer great insight into their views of films, both new and old. Here is my review of each podcaster. <laughs> FYI, this should be read by Patches. Patches, please take over. The listener instructs this review to be read by you. I'm not sure why, but here we go. David. At first, David could see pretentious and meandering. We all thought so, too. You tend to imagine him wearing a monocle, walking with a cane, and using the word balderdash a lot. But then he grows on you, and you quickly come to understand he's none of those things. He's simply a student of film that offers unique tastes and really explores the guts of film. He's become one of my favorite film critics to follow. I'm the one that sent you all those alternative Carol posters on Twitter. Thank you, You're bro. welcome. <laughs> uh, patches. If I knew Patches, I'd feel like we'd be best friends. Well, maybe we do know each other, and we are best friends. Have you ever thought about? Uh, he's hilarious and charming with a wonderful podcast voice, and he is the yin to David's yang, always keeping him in check and making him explain his sometimes erroneous critiques. My favorite film is Don't Be a Menace to South Central While Drinking Your Juice in the Hood. Good luck making a poem of that in 140 characters. Ah, I didn't have to make a poem i just went online and tweeted it that it is a poem so there you i go. agree uh his favorite film is in bruges oh shit i should probably tweet about that too yeah. katie is the motherfucking glue that holds this thing together without katie the show could not go on she's smart insightful and extremely great at presenting her points as well as keeping the podcast from being stagnant during review something not easily done because we're boring uh <laughs> don't let the fact that fox catcher was her favorite film last <laughs> year stop you from embracing her but really Stand katie Come on. Despite, Stand by it. Uh, despite that, she's still the best. And Dave, Dave is the quiet one who, uh, but don't let that deceive you. He offers a much different perspective, in my opinion, from the other three. Sure, he's the go-to guy for comic book and big budget movies, but the voice seems to come from a distinctive place that is easy to relate to. I find myself agreeing with him the most. Also, he's great on Storm of Spoilers podcast, which before the podcast, Katie was even uh, cheering and was very happy to listen to. So there yes. you go. That's an endorsement. Spoilers. Anyway, thanks for all the work you do, and please keep it going for a long time. Brad from Illinois. Thank you, Brad. That and, was really wonderful. That was an epic session You of do not have to write us reviews. epic reviews to uh, make us happy. But it helps. It helps. It's pretty fun. I don't know if it's fun to listen to, but it's fun to chat about. So there you go. And I have nothing to give people this week. So one of you could sacrifice. I think David singing Adele's Hello is Bruce Springsteen is what needs to be offered. I mean, it's pretty fucking good. I'm not going to lie. (laughs) (laughs) 
So everybody woke up to fun Monday news this week, which isn't always the case in some weeks. But in this uh, post-Halloween weekend, where I was dressed as a member of the Star Trek Next Generation crew, somewhat presciently, because it turns out CBS is going to bring Star Trek back to television where it belongs. Unfortunately, missing next year's September uh, anniversary, but uh, we will be getting a new Star Trek series from CBS in January 2017. But in the details is the rub. Uh, Much like previous Star Trek series have been planted places where uh, CBS would like viewers to go, whether that be uh, straight to syndication with uh, The Next Generation or launching UPN with uh, Voyager and Enterprise. Uh, This iteration of Star Trek will air once on broadcast for CBS, but then for all United States subscribers, we'll go to CBS All Access, their streaming digital service that you will have to subscribe to separately. So Star Trek fans are expected to, you know, sort of buoy this new uh, service that I assume would also include Supergirl by this point, because we're talking about a start date of January It better, because I was infuriated that I couldn't watch the Supergear. Supergirl uh, I was pilot. infuriated that I did watch the Supergirl pilot, but it's, <laughs> it is worth noting that, uh, that, well, two things. One, the Supergirl pilot is a fucking nightmare. And two, uh, CBS, whatever it's called, All Access, uh, will have every... If it doesn't already, it might already have every episode of every Star Trek series ever. I believe it does already. I believe it does already. There's something in it for fans. Yes. And then there's always places that, uh, you know, have had that previously. At one point, Netflix had the run of all the Star Wars things. They might just Star Trek things. They might still. Yeah, but this time you get to pay $5.99 for it. I know. And, you know, it's nice to have something that's dedicated. Like, I don't, I don't know. I, I, the, the all Simpsons ever thing might've been like a flash in the pan, but that seemed pretty cool when it, you know, sort of launched to have at least a hub for obsessing over multiple episodes of the Simpsons. And then like the internet and Star Trek is, you know, sort of a match made in heaven. I'm just excited because we get to have more Star Trek. I'm a little, weirded out by the way they're going about it because like you know historically it's weird because the rights are sort of divided between paramount and cbs uh with movies and tv series and this one they have alex kurtzman who's of course one of the writers on uh the 2008 reboot and star trek in darkness but it's a completely different deal than the one he has with Roberto Orsi and the movies with Paramount. So although it seems like they're related, they're actually still completely separate. So I'm, I'm wondering if this is like somebody at CBS realized that they were about to miss like the one good time they had to have like another shot at Star Trek because they're coming up on like a 50th anniversary. And then like, well, why does the anniversary feel like it's so, I mean, why is the anniversary the, the important thing to them here? Do you think? It does some marketing for them, I would assume. And it's just like the way that, uh, you know, anything would pull on 80s nostalgia or, you know, more successful or not, somebody greenlit Gem and the Holograms off the idea that, you know, if you have just enough uh, nostalgia pulled, it, you'll, you'll bring I it mean, back. You I mean, uh, you have introduced every episode of the podcast this year with the year of our Time Lord, <laughs> Dr. Emmett Brown. So, so clearly there's some, there's some appeal to, yeah, but they're, uh, they're delivering on they're delivering a movie. They're delivering a third Abrams verse movie for the the anniversary. So that's in the clear. They didn't have to rush this necessarily. There's just an obvious pull to get something. You know, there, actually, you know, there's no sci-fi television show 
on TV? Like, what are the options right now, Dave? You you would probably know best. Now that Battlestar is long gone, uh, I mean, sci-fi whole- television or the sci-fi channel uh, television shows are extremely niche. Theory? Oh, I mean, <laughs> in terms of like the class, there used to be a whole bunch of like space operas or like a weird group of ragtag teams are hurtling through space on a spaceship. And, you know, Star Trek was definitely key to those existing. But you're, you're right, Patches, in the sense that there isn't a core one right now. Right. A lot of our science fiction and fantasy is taking like uh, Walking Dead, Earthbound, or fant- straight up fantasy uh, routes. But I do is think- it. I, I mean, is the, the Doctor Who kind of filling that void at that point? I mean, Doctor Who bit. is fantasy. It, yeah, it doesn't always have to. It can do Star Trek-like themes, but it's like the movie got like drug kicking and screaming to make the anniversary date. It's like they had Bob Orsi who was going to Yeah, they hired and, Justin Lin, for Christ's sakes. Yeah, and then <laughs> like it all fell apart, and then finally they were like, oh, Simon Pegg could write it, and Justin Lin could direct it, and it starts next month. And that was to <laughs> make this date. So it's like I, it's it feels like um, somebody realized that Star Trek like is too valuable of a franchise to sort of let wither, but like they well, kind especially of, with Star Wars coming out. I mean, don't you feel like fever for for space exploration? Even though that's not exactly what Star Wars is, like getting something in space, having a big I sci-fi got a property, fever and the only cure <laughs> is space <Yeah>. exploration. <laughs> I, I would, and of course, Star Trek would exactly. never admit that Star Wars is what's encouraging them here. Well, well the other thing—it's not just Star Wars. I don't think um, we were talking about this when uh, we talked about revisiting or seeing The Martian for a second time. Is The Martian? Uh, a movie of 2015, yes, because we're in a moment of science. We're in a moment of exploration. What better time to relaunch Star Trek than when you have the Elon Musks of the world promising of going to Mars and uh, of NASA promoting that, those kind of trips? Like, this is the moment to get back into the Gene Roddenberry exploration, like, world come together and, and explore mentality. I definitely like the positivity aspect of it, but I also think it's a good time to get back to a sci-fi series that is actually throwing up some sort of mirror at society, maybe as bald-facedly as the original Star Trek did. But it feels like, you know, when we have, like, tons of Ryan Murphy anthology series that are just about shock value and style, like, why not have a weird science fiction, like, Black Mirror discussion, but, like, Star Trek used to, where it's, Oh, Black Mirror's an interesting comparison for this, for, like, opening up the, uh cultural allegory for star trek again yeah i wonder like, if they're do, thinking of that doing that and like it's uh, next generation used to accept freelance scripts from freelancers and it'd be great to you know have a show that was doing you know sort of loosely epithetic mythology things and was also you know opening more doors for young writers but i think there's a good place for like a you know there is going to be more black mirror but that's all single uh, written by a single team so it'd be nice to see like an I, american style sci-fi series I really think that this is Star Wars. <laughs> I, I think Patch's uh, idea is a little bit hoity-toity here and, uh, uh, you know, pulled from uh, from nothing. I, I think this is Star Wars and trying to get it on that, um, realizing that there, we are living in a time. There is a moment, but it has nothing to do with uh, But they're so science. disconnected. Like, <laughs> I get a little money. bit of that and clinging to properties because of Star Wars. It's less about you know, the the scene setting of and the similarities there than it is clinging to your big properties. The other thing, this is totally business motivated, obviously, because uh, if you're going to launch 
CBS All Access, even though it already exists. If you want people to take it seriously and actually buy another streaming program, I mean, now is the time because iTunes or the uh, Apple TV is opening up so you can have all these channels and people will see CBS All Access right there on their Apple TVs. And But no one's going to buy it unless there's a reason. And if you can get all the Trekkies to kind of buy into this, then you start having a section of of the population really investing in this cockamamie streaming service. Yeah. Like, and why so, do we need another one? Well, someone well for was, Star Trek. Someone was asking me on Twitter before what I was talking about with the next generation and syndication, but basically like they couldn't find a network that would put like the Star Trek sequel on because Star Trek two had like started trying to reboot and was looking crappy. So instead they made it and would sell it to like your local affiliate and just be like, put it on in this time block. And they would have to make a lot more individual sales, but they sort of did an end around on the network that would care about ratings. And by the time it got a big enough boom, like you'd wonder why, you know, Next Generation was on a different time in your town than like Next Town when it wasn't on. And so it just got picked up and <laughs> picked up. And then all of a sudden, entire series were being made with the straight syndication model. And so yeah. they're hoping that, you know, Star Trek will once again bring an audience to a new platform. Uh, yeah. I More than community, exactly right. at least. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, I, also, I think that that's going to be the big story from this. It's not going to have anything to do with Star Trek. It's going to be um, the the means by which networks or, or, you know, anyone who has content, content providers who want to drive audiences to places are going to leverage television in, in a lot, uh, the same way that like a print magazine will, will leverage their magazine in order to get the meat of a story on their website. Um, I think that it's going to be, you're going to see television take on a new role and dynamic uh, with, with viewers and with their programs, it could be interesting. could be disastrous. Yeah. Actually, I'm not going to have anything to do D- with Dave and I were debating on Twitter uh, earlier this week about if Gene Roddenberry would believe in VOD and putting things behind a paywall. And I say no. Huh. Even though he would, you know, D- Dave's argument, I'm putting words in your mouth here, Dave, okay. that Gene Roddenberry would want everyone to be able to have access to Star Trek, whatever they want. So put it behind the paywall and you can buy in. But no. Gene Roddenberry would want everyone to have it for free because he's basically a communist and it should be given to the world what? and have it available okay. on all platforms. A communist, <laughs> futurist, like an interesting right. Bernie Sanders, socialist. socialist. He's a, he would assume that humanity would eventually evolve past money, so the technology of getting something on demand I think he would find <laughs> very exciting. So as we speak, the leisure class, the conclusion film for HBO's Project Greenlight series is airing on HBO. Um, some early reviews have not have not been excellent. And uh, <laughs> um, definitely I wanted to come back and re- revisit this uh, topic that we because we talked about the show when it first started. Uh, because the director Jason had uh, made the bold choice of like kicking off the writer and wanting to shoot on film, and it uh, the show had made some headlines for one of their producers um, sort of running up against Matt Damon in uh, representation politics during like the casting of the show, 
so uh, Project Greenlight uh, sort of came out of the gate with the bang after being gone for a little bit, and uh, HBO has been finding a lot of success with it. Uh, I wanted to revisit it now that it's over because I kind of feel like we talked a lot about the director without talking about Effie, the producer, and it ended up being like a weird season about, I guess, sort of like money versus creativity and uh, these two personalities clashing. And it's been really interesting seeing like film Twitter uh, discuss it the Mondays after, which I'm sure is inside baseball nonsense uh, to most of you. But... From where we uh, left off with Project Greenlight, did any of you finish it and have your ideas about Jason switch to Team Effie, or are they more, like, are, is auteur theory strong uh, through Project Greenlight? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I was, if I was ever on anybody's team, it was on Team Effie. Uh, I have reservations about her producer style. I think that she was very pragmatic and was very much just about making the movie happen. I think that she, um, her, she reminded me a lot of Ethan Hawke in before midnight in that she, uh, her tone of voice always come back. Right. (laughs) But like she, you know, he was always, uh, because he would never sort of sound upset because of his demeanor would always be able to say confrontational things that would result in, it would sort of set off, uh, Celine's character. I think Effie was a lot like that. But at the same time, I mean, like she was, she had the the demeanor to get the movie done, to get it made. She didn't necessarily care if it was very good. I think that she understood how suffocating the uh, parameters of the show would be. Not that no one uh, has ever made a decent movie for three million dollars in twenty some odd days, um, or you know whatever it was. But uh, um, and obviously. There were a lot of things happening here that were going to get in the way of this movie being good. I think Jason comes off worse with every subsequent episode, uh, and yeah, it and was a really, really long. It was a real long arc for him, which I was not expecting for them to hold on to past like mid season. Yeah, I mean, he doesn't come off well from from the start, but I think, um, and, and certainly the fact that the movie is terrible is the worst thing for him. I mean, for obvious reasons, but of course it, it just makes him look that much more foolish for sticking to guns that were never loaded. But he gets to the end here and um, he becomes – he really loses the forest for the trees fighting small battles uh, down to the last episode, which I think apart from how these shows can be edited to what, – What is um, he fighting for? Just well, he was fighting for – you know, there's the thing with a car crash. But then recently there was uh, – he was fighting because some shots were not lit properly. They were overexposed or underexposed and and he uh, – and there were major story elements that everybody else in the production – uh, Lena Motto of HBO and all those other people felt needed to be addressed. And he was really focused on on the particulars rather than the bigger picture. Uh, it, it, as someone who went to school, film school with him, I, again, I did not know him personally, but we were there at the same time. Um, but really, more importantly, I've been to, you know, I've been to that film program. I recognize that mentality. I recognize how much of a trap it can be. And uh, I've seen so many bad student films that have resulted from it. I produced Columbia student films. Yeah. And boy, I can tell you. They yeah, like that. Um, you survive those trenches. Oh my but god! You don't give those people three million dollars, and uh, <laughs> even if they're spending their own money, it's like yeah. Jesus, don't do this. Yeah, so I, I think he comes off really, really poorly. But I also think that once you're in the door, once you have some—I mean, it hasn't necessarily worked out well for previous Project Greenlight directors. But we live in a different time; you get more exposure. I think getting your foot in the door, being able to have uh, Ben Affleck and Matt Damon's emails—who knows? Uh, not that so either of them. You think uh, Jason Mann will make another film? Is that what you're saying? I think one way or the other will make another film, but I think uh, his frustrations are probably only just beginning. 
Um, I mean, the guy who directed the first season of Project Greenlight got to write the leisure class. Yeah. So yeah. After Good being on fired him. by the new winner. Okay. But uh, I think, you know, just to go back to what Dave was saying, I think Effie, um, the points that she raised in the first episode that we may have already discussed were very true. Um, you know, I think that they exist and reverberate far beyond what Project Greenlight, the parameters of Project Greenlight are. Uh, and uh, I don't think the show, I mean, I think the show was more about just showing the various stew of madness and uh, you know all sorts of various frustrations and insanities that can result in uh, a movie these days. And uh, it's great television, but it's never meant to be good filmmaking. That's not what it's about, no matter how many times they stare into the camera and say, like, we want to show what it's really like to make a movie. They, they want to make watchable television, and the fact that it happens to be in the process of making a movie that is, by my count, airing exactly once on HBO – uh, sort of a second <laughs> thing. <laughs> did either of uh, Katie or Patches, did you guys finish Project Greenlight? I did not keep up, no. I did not no. either. I, I've been really entertained listening to people talking about it. Yes, so. exactly. I've been keeping up with the tweets. Yeah, it's been. it's had some, some good conversation built around it, but I definitely felt the same sort of thing where I was really... I thought that uh, the producer, Effie Brown, and Jason Mann, the director, were just having uh, like personality issues to begin with. And then towards the end, I guess the making of a reality TV show revealed itself to, you know, sort of solidify what the narrative was supposed to be. But I don't know. It it seems like, uh, I guess the interesting thing is the things we were talking about in the first episode ended up being the things that we would have been talking about had we all watched the last episode, which is like representation. Is this guy like a genius or does he want too much control? And, uh, you know, it was... It was interesting. Go for it, but it seems like it was a big enough hit for HBO that it might be uh, it might be coming back if uh, Batman and The Martian, are, you know, can still make uh, phone that calls from three a.m. That's how we're referring to format, Damon. These days, uh, there's one part the where Martian. Ben Affleck visited the set, and they're like, "Oh man, Batman's here! Batman's here!" And I'm like, "He's a he's a person." But <laughs> he actually oh. comes off phenomenally. Yeah, he comes on off really show. well. I mean, really? Matt Damon. Matt Damon sticks his foot in his mouth in the first episode and then sort of disappears, but. Ben Affleck, uh, this is a big win for him. Yeah, he, he does come he off really is, well. He comes off as like a very grounded. I mean, he always has. He has a great public image. <laughs> Love that guy. There's that but, moment uh, in the last episode where he's like, "Not my taste," but he stood up for what he believed in, and that's the most important thing. I'm like, you stepped out of that so well. Yeah, Just, like, but he, he also fought for film early on. Oh, he, he gave him like he gave him his own noose, and then like watched him hang himself, and then was like, eh, "Not my taste," but you know, I think it's a success. <laughs> Ben Affleck, man. Yeah, that guy. That's how you get Argo made. That guy would be a savvy fucking politician. <laughs> That's all I'm saying. We, we, got, we got dangerously close, but instead we got Batman, so uh, count your blessings. Yeah, well, like a politician, he makes the policy is disastrous, but the uh, <laughs> as long as the charisma's there, he'll get elected. Choosing to work with Zack Snyder, I would not my president. <laughs> Um, that's the best. That's the best way to start off. James Bond Great is thing. about to release its newest installment with Spectre. It is the newest Daniel Craig installment. It's probably going to be his last installment. But every time he makes a James Bond movie, he gives an interview about how he doesn't like playing starring as Inspector Bond. Mm. Mm, no, 
I support it. I support it. Isn't that like more traditional, like like beat cop police word? Well, that's where they got Spectre from. Really? No. 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 It's like from a doctor. Ghost, no. It's like a ghost. It's like a rogue nation or something. No. The title of this movie is not important. Oh, okay. Yeah, it never comes up in the film. Don't worry about it. Well, I mean, that that might be related, might not be related to what's been on my mind, which I've been thinking about James Bond as a franchise, especially now as it's trying to recontextualize itself in the world of like the modern mega franchise where we have movies projected by basically just Disney, but also Warner Brothers trying to keep up with Disney into like the 2020s of like our part sixes and our Avengers threes and uh, what have you. The things that uh, keep Dave Gonzalez writing on the internet. Yes, and the you know the things that people have decided uh, they want continuity in. <laughs> yeah, I but this is the, the only interesting franchise to talk about, so I'm happy we're doing it. No, this is it's interesting that Dave wants to talk about this because he is so uh, loving of franchises. He's not coming at this from like a. James Bond is the only one who's doing it right anymore. That's why I want to hear Dave talk about it. Well, I don't know if they're doing it right or not, because I would have been like a James Bond fan since pre-Pierce Brosnan reboot. It was just always like, you know, cool spy movies. And who doesn't like that when you're a kid uh, to supplement your, you know, sleepover watching binges. So we would watch all the James Bond movies uh, like once a year, me and my brother and my the, the neighbor boys and then once uh, <laughs> GoldenEye was like announced it was like a whole renewal and we were like all cool again because we knew stuff like who Blofeld was and we had you know knew the difference between like a view to a kill and live and let die and then uh, you know the course of Bond uh, ran its course which I'm sure everybody who's listening to uh, now has sort of figured out the, the Pierce Brosnan Bonds got like oversized and cheesy and they had to sort of reboot it with Casino Royale and Daniel Craig to bring it back story-wise to the beginning of Bond, even though Pierce Brosnan was sort of another one of the ageless continuations um, like Batman was allowed to be up until Christopher Nolan came along. And well, because they, they found themselves in the tricky situation of how do you, how do you change a fundamentally static character? Right. And the and only way to do that was to go back to sort of, you know, the beginning and, and raise some ground. There's always the interesting moment in, like, uh, His Majesty's Secret Service where George Lazenby says this never happened to the other fellow. And mm-hmm. uh, it's like it's never addressed again because they realized that wasn't going to work and you didn't need it. You could just suddenly have a new James Bond. But that's also, like, the mother of all fan theories that Bond is just a code name for whoever's uh, the person the that's just... The worst. Killed me. The worst. Well, that's, but, you know, uh, also, that's... Spectre really goes out of its way to say that that is not an active theory. Right. But, but, you know, uh, and I think this is kind of what Dave is saying, that Casino Royale, that first scene, black and white in the bathroom, I mean, that, it's effectively accomplishing the same thing that Lazenby turning to the camera and saying this never happened to the other fellow uh, does. It's just doing it in a manner that is more appropriate for the Daniel Craig era bonds. Mm, I'm not sure I understand that. It's, it's saying, like, we are restarting the clock here. This is a different Bond, flipping the page. But that's um, not what Lazenby does by making that meta no, joke. No, I mean, he, it is. He's saying, like, okay, we all know what Bond is. We all know who this guy is. I'm not him. I'm someone else. But it's the same ethos overall. And so now we're just going to pick up from here as if we were here all along. Well, the it's reason the that I'm idea. on David's side in this particular argument, even though I'm not exactly sure if the details of what he's saying is right that I agree with, but that 
on His Majesty's Secret Service is incredibly continuity-based, because that's where James Bond gets married and his wife gets killed, and that's supposed to be his, like, motivation for, like, never settling down again, and although they never really mention it, that's, like, it comes up uh, on the periphery a few times, even after the actor's been changed. And then they dredged up that same idea for Casino Royale with Vesper, uh, and that is very present in Spectre. Mm-hmm. That seems to be the only thing you can do to James Bond to lock down a point in continuity is to kill somebody that he's in love with, but like that we've spent a significant amount of time also investing in as an audience. Because you could well, kill M is like, is, uh, M is also a version of that now post Skyfall. That's true, but that's also an interesting example of. Uh, like I don't know the uh, the never ending infinity loop that the uh, uh, James Bond's pre well, writing Royale's in the make. evolution of the, of the franchise. Right. Well, like, but if there's no way to make a singular continuity, so it's not even like they're attempting to be what Marvel or Star Wars is. They're attempting to ape what that is, because if Judy Dench is M, but she's also the female M predates. The male M, but the female M is also the one that uh, was lording over Pierce Brosnan, who's a continuation of the Sean well, Connery um, M. Unless they live in parallel universes, and for some reason, well, but like the whole Judy reason we think- M is consistent between all. Okay, these but, the reason we think the-, the theory is stupid <laughs> that there's a code name called James Bond is because this is a franchise that exists without having. It's much more like an anthology series and much less. Like a continuity-based Sorry, franchise. I'm, I'm but but the Dr. real meat of what we're talking about here is that for the first time, and I think this is what merits the comparisons to Marvel and all the rest, because they've now switched into something that more closely resembles a comic book uh, timeline, is that we have a self-contained unit of Bond movies. It's like the, the amazing run. James Bond, a run, yes. Mm. Um, and while that was always sort of discreetly done before by virtue of casting a new actor, now – there is actually a narrative through line through not just two movies as there was from Casino Royale to Quantum of Solace, which is a direct sequel. But there are four movies that form a reasonably coherent unit. Yeah, we'll I, don't, talk- I, don't, I don't want to get too spoilery, he- right. spoilery here, but even if you uh, haven't seen Spectre and seen Skyfall – uh, we already know there's so much uh, history entangled in this arc and, with Daniel Craig. Just it's safe to say, the Bond. without spoiling a thing, that they lean into that hard yes. in Spectre. Uh, this is a movie in the opening credits. You see M dying again. You see Vesper come back. I mean, they are setting you up from the start that this is a story that preys upon his history. As all of the Daniel Craig Bond movies have done, um, it is that they look – Back into the character's past it, and, and, you know, further and further and further. What's interesting is that that's made these movies very successful. We've really invested in Daniel Craig, um, but also kind of playing into some of what Dave was talking about earlier. You know, this is not what any of the other movies did over decades of time, screen time. But why were those so successful and why do we really invest in Daniel Craig now? And like, can you go beyond that? Like well, now it, if, if Daniel Craig leaves, where, where does it go? Can you relaunch like by having such Tom Holland? I, mean, yeah, I guess com- comic books are proof that you can just go on to a new run, but with so much history behind the Bond franchise where it was sporadic and just one-offs, it's, it'd be interesting to try and go back to that. Or that would be the interesting. That's the interesting thing about like how do you contain something that doesn't need to be like a story based uh, like unit? Because I think that like 
the Daniel Craig Bonds being connected is much more a reflection of the time that what they needed to be at the time they were released, much mm-hmm. less than it is a focused, you know, like narrative decision behind the people that control James Bond. It's just like this is what is making these things successful. Or like there was a brief period of time. Uh, which uh, I think only recently ended with Skyfall and because the Harry Potter movie stopped that Harry Potter was the like highest grossing continuously run franchise and it beat James Bond for only like a few years towards those last few films. But it's like James Bond decided to tell one story for like four movies. But now when they switch actors, especially when, you know, you have talks online and stuff like about like Idris Elba picking up or the black James Bond they're just going to have to either choose to reboot it or just do that Bond shuffle step where it's like, and now this is James Bond. You're going to accept this because you think James Bond movies are something that are different than like the character or the story. What's interesting is that, and I can only speak for myself, but uh, I think while I ultimately ended up being very frustrated at how they bring a lot of these things to a close, the idea of investing in the character beyond a single mission at a time um, beyond like, you know, here's the villain and here's James Bond. These are his new gadgets and there's the new girl and he's going to, you know, and it's all going to be a flat circle. Um, I think it allowed for them to aim higher than a lot of Bond movies ever had to be, you know, to reflect the time. And there was a lot more gravitas to it. Uh, But by bringing in Sam Mendes, who was an unorthodox, but ultimately I think very intelligent choice by having Martin Campbell do his best work and, I mean, like in grounding this in real stakes, these movies went from being superior, reliable popcorn entertainment to at least in two of the four cases among the very best films of any kind made in their respective years. And like that is something that I fear would be lost if they went back to doing one offs. I remember uh, I, I remember being very excited all four, all three times the Craig follow-ups at the idea of them playing into this larger story. Uh, and, and I think uh, I, I think is every possibility that we'll never get another run of Bonds this at this average level, at least, or at least that, that just, reaches the heights. That I just mm. don't know if the continuing story is what makes these Bonds so good. Like, I have seen all of the Craig Bonds. I remember Casino Royale kind of like I remember who Vesper is and all of that stuff but like the continuation of Spectre and you know who's been behind everything like none of that really means anything to me but I love these movies yeah and I I kind of I mean I tend to agree with both of you that they do seem disconnected and there are little threads that connect them but you're not really emotionally invested in all the bond continuity I don't really find myself emotionally attached that's the problem with Spectre well, yeah, well, like, and, and I come to realize that more. Anymore, but but I, I do have, think, David, really. you're, you're on the money about something, which is there's something about this run that allows it to be more cinematic. And it's it goes beyond just being in 2015 and having new technology or having the legitimacy of this blockbuster allowed to be directed by Sam Mendes, shot by Roger Deakins or uh, Hoyt de la, what, what was it? Hoyt van Yes, Hoyt van um, You know, these high caliber uh, craftsmen in some ways uh, you know we're, we're in that era where we want these people to be making these movies but would they be making them even if they were one-offs anyway that's the real question there's something about the continuity aspect that I think plays into uh, allowing these movies to be more cinematic I, I don't know is, is that 
Well, Skyfall was intended to be a one-off in some ways. Like, not—I mean, obviously, it's connected to Casino Royale in some small ways. But as far as I can tell, they've erased Quantum of Solace from the record, basically. Maybe we're too caught up in the Sam Mendes movies when we're talking about this because Skyfall and Spectre, which we've all just seen, are so close yeah. to our yeah. But Daniel Sam Mendes wasn't like my, uh, my third. Sam Mendes wasn't going to come back originally. Like, Skyfall was not made as a to be continued. No, but it. Uh, you know, I think, and yeah, this was interesting that that Spectre sort of recontextualizes Skyfall, but um, Skyfall and Killing M makes a big statement in, in sort of the James Bond. It takes the one element that has always been recurring in James Bond movies, you know, whether it's M or Q or whatever, and, and kills them. Um, but I think, uh, um, yeah, and it, and it worked very well in that respect. But I think it's because it sort of subconsciously played off of the pathos that was instilled in Casino Royale. I mean, we knew that this character was wounded. We knew that he was hurt. I think you felt the loss of M and his relationship to her, which is always was previously only really set up um, in sort of like you know a maternal glimpse here and there in the office. Uh, I think you, you felt the weight of it more on James Bond, more as a result of Casino Royale. Um, and I think Skyfall was only possible because of the success of that movie. And uh, I think that, uh, you know, Spectre revisits, again, we'll talk about the, the ins and outs of it later, but I think it plays a lot of the same beats again to much lesser effect, again, because of the same mythology that it's trying to exploit. So that's the, the interesting thing is that, like, I understand, I agree with what you're saying, thinking of Skyfall as an individual film, but as a fan of James Bond, uh, Skyfall worked for me because I lost my M. Like, I lost the M that Mm -hmm. I saw, like, interact with Pierce Brosnan and, like, give him some cheek and, like, be all girl power in, like, the mid-90s. I don't think there's anything that happened in between M and the Daniel Craig character version of Bond that made me feel that loss any more than I would have just by the I don't fact know that she totally, was the I think M. they have a more motherly relationship in these movies because we get to see them outside of the, the office context. You know, we get to see Bond and M at M's house. That's very personal. You get to see Bond at Bond's house, yeah, which yeah. is... Uh, yeah. did you, was Bond's apartment in any of the previous movies? I think it was in Skyfall, but... Yeah. No, I think it was in Skyfall. Or no, uh, he goes to M's house in He Skyfall. goes to M's house. Yeah, I don't yeah. think you see his... It's just, it's just so interesting that you know we're clinging to these most recent films about why they're successful. Is it continuity? But I mean, maybe I'm just speaking for Dave and I. But these the older films are successful, and it had a lot to do with just switching gears in a drastic way. I think about I love the Timothy Dalton movies. I love Living Daylights, and I love License to Kill. And those movies were man chastised for being too violent and too mature. Everything the the Craig movies are. They were ahead of their times. No one wanted that movie at that time, especially. It was like whiplash after the Roger Moore movies. But that's just like doing something totally different, different, making it realistic, making it gritty, making it about, you know, cocaine trade, drugs and stuff, like hard, mature themes. Can that happen after the Craig years? Uh, can this go individual? I, you know what I'm thinking of, David? I'm thinking of Hardcore, the movie that we saw at oh my Toronto. God. <laughs> imagine, uh, if, imagine if James Bond just 
had a had a first person entry that was totally just like an epi- like playing Goldeneye. No basically, they, I mean, <laughs> you guys are running into the core problem of James Bond, which is what we've been asking since Goldeneye, which is why do this now? The Cold War is over. Like this yeah. is so this is so far from anything that would be relatable as spying, as nationalism, as acceptable with race well, relations. Inspector like, Inspector acknowledges that problem head on too, and we'll get there, but. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and Daniel Craig in the press has too. been acknowledging that head on. Daniel Craig keeps calling Bond a misogynist. Uh, I guess that's not a great way to keep the character persistent. Yeah. No, know? but he's, he acknowledges that Bond is sort of an anachronism, um, and, and he is. Uh, but you know, and by making these, these run of films so personal uh, and so invested in – so character-driven really, they don't have to pay much mind to the idea that – um, you know they can divorce Bond from the Cold War, and I think they have done that effectively. I mean, I think uh, they don't have to, and they could go back in time and and fill the blank that Man Man from Uncle attempted to, and, and I, do a period Bond movie. I don't. I'm not saying they won't, and I'm not saying if they did, it wouldn't work. But I'm kind of saying they shouldn't. <laughs> why, why are you saying that? Because I think that Bond needs to be. If you like, okay. So over the weekend, I masochistically listen to the Bond themes about 900 times to rank them as many people have done before uh, for Rolling Stone. And and in doing so, I realized that more so than I knew before that all of the Bonds are very reflective of the time in which they were made. I mean, it's true of the songs and it's true of the films themselves. I think having a Bond that is set in, a, in the past, that is that just takes it away from being a reflection of the here and now, uh, is a disservice to the character. It's not what Bond is about. I think that we enjoy the older Bonds because they can give us that without trying because these movies naturally find their place in the past over a long enough period of time. But in order for them to do that, in order for them to have that value, in order for TBS to play or TNT to play you know, 18 Days of Bond uh, or whatever it is that they used to do where they'd marathon all the movies or I obsessively watched them as a kid. I don't think so. Um, they They need to be set at the time in their own making and, and feel, you know, vaguely futuristic bond has to feel ahead of the curve. Uh, and Thus uh, Moonraker. Well, you know, it can go the other way as well. Um, Talk about things. Well, those are all still adaptation things. Like the way I probably see bond going, if I had to like make a Vegas bet on it is Daniel Craig leaves and they decide to start doing modern reboots of actual Ian Fleming novels again. Mm. Because you mean like another, another Goldfinger? Uh yes, another Goldfinger. Probably not another Thunderball since there's already two I, of those. I would like, be so fucking mad if Bond, the one franchise with, with integrity, was like, oh, it's Goldfinger again. I mean, not only like, could you not do that because people would just be livid, and there's really no reason. I don't think uh, Barbara Broccoli would allow that as a as a caretaker of this franchise. But also, Sam Mendes has laid in so many references to the classic Bond movies in his two entries that it would feel really repetitive as soon as uh, you know after in the wake of Spectre. And I mean, I'm, still, I'm still working off the hypothesis that you know Pierce Brosnan and James Bonds were during the '90s, so they were about spectacle, and these are during the 2000s, so they're about continuity. Like I don't, I think that's the fad. Yeah, but these are over. So exactly. So like, <laughs> do we think they're over? Like, do all of us? I, I think Daniel think Craig comes back for one more. I would love it I if he came back too. for one more. However. Uh, let's just say that Spectre ends with a period and not an ellipsis. It does. Uh, so, I don't know. 
it, it does. Uh, so they, it, it's hard. It would, it, if they were, if you were to come back, it would be a one-off, which after four movies tied together would be very awkward. So I tend to think that he could be done. Uh, I think Spectre's already breaking box office records in the UK, and there's <laughs> also, a Brinks also, truck waiting for him. I was thinking during the movie, like, where does Daniel Craig go if this was his last Bond movie? What would he do? I don't know. But, like, also, Theater. I'm so much less interested in – I care – like, I, I like Daniel Craig as Bond. I like what he's done, but so much of it depends on the filmmaker that they get. Uh, you, you want to talk about the auteur theory and whatnot as it pertains to Project Greenlight. I mean, look at Mark Foster's Quantum of Solace, and then look at – now, Martin Campbell does sort of the everyman thing, the, the journeyman thing, and uh, and crushes it. And the only two good movies he's ever really made are are Bond reboots. So bring him back when they want to start Bond over again. But like, unless he, they're coming back with Sam Mendes, I can't believe I'm saying this as someone who's never really been super no, on board. Have you Sam ever Mendes. liked any other Sam Mendes movie? No, but I mean, Skyfall is phenomenal. Half of Spectre is great, and and the parts that the problems that I have with Spectre, I we'll don't I don't play yeah, at his we'll feet. Um, so I, I it's. I would have a hard time getting really excited about another Daniel Craig James Bond if Sam Mendes were not directing it. I would watch four more of these from these guys. I, would I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't want Sam Mendes to come back. I mean, especially after these two. But Daniel Craig, I'm totally into, and and going in a different direction, taking as. I mean, I think after Quantum of Solace is a hard turn left into Skyfall, uh, and I would do that again in a totally different direction yeah. with him. Even yeah. if like suddenly the continuity of these other movies weren't in play like daniel craig just goes on another mission yeah i mean are we forced into continuity because if, it's the same actor i don't know if they did a daniel craig goes on another mission like skyfall sort of thing with sam mendes that would be the dream that like that would be amazing. that would be the best i i don't know and bring back that. roger deakins yeah i don't know i think it could be i think it has to go smaller or it has to go much bigger you know, we're kind of in a hard to go much bigger. We're kind of in a weird medium-sized bond. Really, it can't go, go bigger. It should go a lot longer. These movies are so big and so <laughs> long. Oh yeah, I wouldn't ask them to be longer, but I don't know. There's something that the you know watching some of the older Bond movies this past weekend. Um, you know, the scale of those small actual espionage. There's not a whole lot of espionage in these movies. Maybe that's something they go back to i'm just trying to figure out how you change directions because that's what i kept thinking about during specter like where do you possibly well maybe that's go? something we should have our listeners tell us this yes week, where they want bond to go from here if even if whether or not you've seen specter i will retweet replies yeah or, what's the hell yeah. on new bond you tell us this time we have no power to make it happen but we would love to know anyway it's not true patches will make it happen he knows the broccoli's I will tell them that Spectre is a poem. <laughs> that does it for today's Fighting in the War Room. We'll be back next week, or we'll be back on Friday, maybe. Also that, uh, to review Spectre. Bet you couldn't guess that that was what we were going to review. In the meantime, tell the people who you are. I am Matt Patches. I'm a senior editor at Esquire.com. I'm on Twitter at Mr. Patches, and we have a website, fightinginthewarm.com, where you can leave comments, you can share the episodes, or you can tell us about how Bond should end, and we'll file it to the Broccoli's, and it will happen. I'm David Ehrlich. I am a staff writer at Rolling Stone. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at David Ehrlich, and you can find all of us together on the Facebook.com at Fighting in the War Room. 
I'm Dave Gonzalez. You can find me on Twitter at DA70, which is how I spell my first name there. I'm right about all the stuff we talked about this episode at geek.com. And uh, usually do a podcast called The Thought Bowl about comic book culture. We're on a little bit of a hiatus because I'm coming up with something Star Wars related. It's going to involve mm. most of the people you've heard tonight and some other people. Special guests, uh, but nothing that is going to spoil patches. Yes. Important. Uh, I'm Katie Rich. You can find me at VanityFair.com, where I've got an award season podcast called Little Gold Men. It's pretty good. Uh, you can also find me on Twitter at Katie Rich, K-A-T-E-Y-R-A-C-H. Twitter is also where we'll be talking about the future of Bond and calling things poems and talking about this week's lightning round question. Uh, oh, first got to tell you what it is. It's at F-I-T-W-R. And then what is this week's lightning round question? In honor of the Peanuts movie, what not Calvin and Hobbes comic needs the animated movie treatment? Thank you for listening, and we'll be back spectering with you on Friday. <laughs> <laughs>